0: tab, the Mildred Van Voorhis Jones Chair in Law at the University of Illinois and the ABI Resident Scholar. On today's podcast we will be discussing asbestos bankruptcy trusts with Professor Todd Brown who is an associate professor of law and the director of the Center for the Study of Business Transactions at Buffalo Law School. Prior to his academic career, Professor Brown was a bankruptcy and corporate restructuring lawyer at Jones Day in Cleveland and in Washington, as well as at Wilmer Hale in Washington. Professor Brown has published several articles concerning mass torts and asbestos bankruptcies, and he is a frequent lecturer on the asbestos trust system. He has also testified concerning these issues before legislators at the state and federal level, the ABI Commission to study the reform of Chapter 11, and the ABA Task Force on Asbestos Litigation and Bankruptcy Trusts. Long controversial, but increasingly common, and controlling literally billions of dollars in assets, asbestos trusts have been catapulted back into the spotlight with a series of noteworthy events in both Congress and in the courts. The common theme running throughout is an allegation that asbestos trusts are often giant scams crippled by a mountain of bogus and repetitive claims, and controlled under a veil of impenetrable secrecy by a handful of plaintiff's lawyers. Rebutting that allegation, supporters of the status quo argue that all of the sound and fury is just another attempt to victimize those already suffering from asbestos exposure and benefit those who have inflicted that suffering on innocent individuals. The first big salvo came in November of last year when the House passed the, quote, Furthering Asbestos Claim Transparency Act of 2013, the bill's name, as you can see, a clever acronym for FACT, F-A-C-T. Then, just a few weeks ago, in the Garlock Ceilings Technology case down in North Carolina, bankruptcy judge George Hodges slashed his estimation of the amount of asbestos claims against the company by a staggering 90% from the 1.3 to 1.4 billion that plaintiffs lawyers had asked for to just $125 million citing in the course of doing so widespread improprieties by the lawyers in inflating the claims adding to the drama the day before judge Hodge's ruling racketeering lawsuits were filed against four of the law firms involved So, Professor Brown, it appears that your field of expertise is very much all the rage right now. To give our listeners some background, can you begin by explaining how it is that asbestos trusts work, or are supposed to work, uh, in bankruptcy generally, and then of course specifically under Section 524 G?
1: Thank you, Charles. Um, I'll try to be brief on that, that's a very broad question. Bankruptcy trusts are established to process and pay the victims of the bankruptcy defendant's asbestos-related activities. The trusts are funded by the debtor, the debtor's insurance, and by others who may have some form of derivative liability for the debtor's asbestos products or activities. And if the district court finds that the requirements of Section 524 g of the code have been satisfied, it is authorized to then enter an injunction channeling all current and future asbestos claims against these parties to the trust. Once established, the trust operate as private administrative comp- compensation funds. As administrative compensation funds, they evaluate merit and value according to their distribution procedures, not applicable, substantive, and evidentiary laws and rules in the tort system. And This allows them to avoid many of the transaction costs of the tort system, where historically most of the money spent on asbestos litigation has gone to lawyers. Uh, Claims that satisfy uh, the trust exposure and medical criteria will be assigned a settlement value either according to a schedule or in special cases based on unique factors suggesting that they are entitled to some other evaluation. And in theory, this process should expedite payments to those with meritorious claims, reduce transaction costs, and preserve assets for the benefit of future victims.
0: So what was the impetus for the passage of Section 524G? And in thinking about that. I'm curious whether you think 524G was even necessary, or were the courts doing a a perfectly fine job of handling uh, asbestos claims uh, prior to the passage of 524G?
1: Okay, well, um, I guess uh, for the first question uh, concerning the impetus for the passage, uh, it really goes back to the early asbestos bankruptcies and the problems that these companies run into if they enter bankruptcy. Um, when they enter a bankruptcy, they typically have several thousand asbestos personal injury suits pending and these plaintiffs are entitled to a trial by jury though if you actually go that far in the tort system um, liquidating their claims through the claims resolution process is is obviously problematic there's you know the statutory limitation on bankruptcy courts deciding tort claims and, and of course some constitutional concerns there um, and To be frank, even if they could be liquidated like other claims, the process would take several years. Um, But assuming you could do all of that, you still have to deal with the question of future claims. Um, And debtors who enter bankruptcy are likely to face several thousand more claims for years to come. Um, And as difficult as it is to bind current claimants and and resolve their claims today, um, it's even more complicated when you're talking about claimants who... Just by the nature of the fact they don't have the disease yet, um, are not identifiable and uh, would not have the ability to uh, appear and be heard. Um, so that, of course, raises due process and other issues as well. Uh, the problem for these companies, though, is that if they file, if they're in bankruptcy, and you can't resolve these current and future liabilities. Uh, the case is likely to be followed by liquidation or the need for some future reorganization, which would uh, obviously raise problems under 1129A11. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we, we have a conundrum there. You you can't reorganize, but uh, if you don't reorganize uh, under Chapter 11, then you have to go into liquidation, which would uh, presumably yield less value for creditors and future victims. Uh, so in these early cases, litigants in the courts devised uh, what I've called and what others have called the trust in- trust injunction approach to bind all current and future victims. Um, some of these courts appointed a legal representative to speak for future victims, uh, especially with respect to fashioning the plan and any associated mechanism for uh, resolving claims and preserving assets for, for these future victims. Uh, Much of this work, however, was premised on the court's authority under Section 105A uh, before the 1994 amendments. And there were a lot of doubts about the statutory foundations of the resulting plans and trusts that undermined the value of the reorganized debtor stock, uh, which was just because the way the trust had been set up, that stock was largely owned by the trust themselves. Uh, So these doubts actually... uh, interfered with the ability to maximize assets for these future victims. Um, So there were a lot of issues there with the need to establish uh, an approach and uh, have an approach that would be recognized as having a a sound statutory foundation.
0: So, uh, Todd, are any asbestos, well, ask it this way, today would essentially all the asbestos trusts be processed via 524G, or would there still be, are there still possibility of ones being done outside of 524G under 105A, other provisions of the code, or whatever?
1: Now, I, once 524G was added to the code, um, the... Uh, Courts have pretty consistently, especially since uh, the bankruptcy wave of the early 2000s, been focused on making sure that debtors complied with that if they were going to try to resolve uh, current and future asbestos claims. Uh, If you're not trying to bind the future claimants, uh, uh, technically there's nothing that requires you to follow 524G, but then, of course, you have to prove that future asbestos claims won't put you into uh, a a situation where you you might right. have to reorganize.
0: Right, right. The the feasibility uh, issue, right. All well, right. it's a uh, it's interesting. Of course, the uh, with regard to future claims, you're talking about the due process issues. Certainly, nothing in 524G itself can affect due process any more than could the definition of claim in 1015. I mean, there was certainly uh, a you know a body of authority that that was certainly uh, permissible as well. But but basically, you've established then that the game now in bankruptcy is going forward under 524G. Well, before we turn to uh, sort of parsing more more carefully how that is working, and I know you've written extensively about the the issues that arise and the problems we have in 524G. <clears throat> Can you lay out for our listeners just exactly what the theoretical justification for us, for these bankruptcy asbestos as trusts is, and and whether that is in fact a sound justification?
1: Um, well, I, I tend to agree with the court in plan insulation. Uh, it's actually a very good statement of the purpose of five twenty four G and of establishing bankruptcy trust under under that section. Uh, there, the court said the purpose and and ultimately the justification for the trust is threefold. Um, Equal treatment of current and future asbestos claimants, uh, preservation of the going concern value of the debtor for the benefit of all creditors, including asbestos victims, and then the prompt payment of meritorious claims through the trust itself. And of these three, uh, Section 524G and its legislative history show a significant emphasis on the trust being established in a way that protects the interest of future
0: victims. the concern was that uh, you just have that timing problem and that the present victims uh, would take more than their share uh, at the expense uh, of those who manifest uh, in the future, which is feels fundamentally unfair uh, to right. us. Yes, Exactly. Well, so if we lived in a perfect world, how would asbestos trusts be structured and run? I mean, sort of what are the paramount goals that we have and, and how would we go about setting them up to make things meet those three goals that you've identified?
1: Well, um, I guess uh, there you know, to understand that, I, I would have to say that uh, you know, we would need to understand where it's working and where it's not. Um, and right now, I, I think it, with the experience that we've had under Section 524G and under the trust established before 524G, We could, you can make a good case that that second, uh, that second justification, the preservation of Mm -hmm. going concern value, uh, has been pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well achieved uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in this process. Um, Right. uh, A number of companies have emerged and free of their asbestos liabilities, and they're thriving today. Um, On. The third point, the, the point about prompt payment of claims, I, I don't know that we've actually, that we're actually there in all of these cases.
0: Uh, Todd, I mean, is there any difference on that one between the pre-1994 and the post-1994 cases? I mean, has 524G at least helped in that regard or hurt or indifferent?
1: Well, um, yeah, I think that when we were dealing with all of the uncertainties in the pre 1994 world, uh, there was a greater attention to uh, trying to make sure that this process would survive scrutiny. Right. And uh, so, and ultimately, uh, I think that the process was a little more focused on at least trying to. Uh, Think about the uh, the underlying foundations of what they were doing. Once 524G went into play, uh, a lot of the process became focused on satisfying the standards, mm-hmm. treating the standards under 524G as boxes to check.
0: Right. So more formulaic. Let's do this, do this, do this, do this, and then we're good to go.
1: Right. And so, uh, and there, you know, and when you started seeing that in some of these uh, cases in the early 2000s, uh, there were a number of objections. Uh, by parties who felt like they were being squeezed out of the process, sometimes there were cancer claimants, sometimes there were insurers, uh, coming in and saying, wait a second, you're just interpreting the language, but you're not really interpreting it in the way that the language was intended to be read. And and that litigation um, extended a number of those cases for a while. Um, Even today, you have some cases that have been in the bankruptcy system for over a decade. So uh, I'm not sure that... yeah. that five twenty four g has necessarily accelerated the cases um, and even if even when they have um, we're also seeing uh as trusts wind up spending a lot of money a lot more money because of some weaknesses in their design um, a number of trusts have adopted procedures where they just suspend payments now for months at a time uh once a certain amount of payment has been reached so there are a lot of lot of little areas in there where in theory the trust should be processing claims quickly but in reality they wind up uh, payments still wind up being delayed
0: well let's focus a uh, little more on 524g you've written extensively more extensively than just about anyone about the promise of asbestos trusts and bankruptcy and unfortunately how that promise uh, has in many cases not been fulfilled can you look at 524g and tell us what some of the most critical problems have been uh, in the operation of five twenty four g in these past ten to twenty years uh, as the cases have been coming up as you were describing, what are the flaws that we have uh, in that system
1: well I think the the biggest flaws are in the stra- statutory design with respect to protections for future victims um, and it, one of the one of the areas where that Where I, where uh, actually my first article I focused on that was uh, the idea of this uh, supermajority vote that is required to obtain a channeling injunction. Um, Under five twenty four G, of course, the uh, asbestos current asbestos claimants uh, have to approve the plan in uh, uh, at least seventy five percent of them. Excuse me, have to approve the plan, Um, and this vote can't be crammed down over the objection of asbestos claimants. Uh, so uh, the claimants um, have what you know have this uh, unassailable vote that uh, that can block confirmation if they don't agree with the plan now what's interesting is that over time, what happened was that uh, certain practices evolved where that power really doesn't sit in the claimants at all but sits in uh, the hands of a, a very small group of leading asbestos lawyers right and that happens for a variety of reasons I mean the claimants do not typically file a proof of claim, and their right to payment and right to vote are not otherwise challenged in the cases. Uh, so lawyers who control a large number of claims can and have, in some cases, basically submitted their entire inventory of claims in a new case.
0: And then they, of um, course, control it.
1: Right. Then they control the votes and, they, and, uh, and have a power to block... Um, uh, any plan that they don't agree with. Um, and it's interesting because they, you know, they've been required to file 2019 statements, but these are filed under seal. Um, they may simply, you know, they don't really say a whole lot other than I've been authorized to represent this person, of course. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the right to vote may just require a, a, an attestation to a reasonable belief that the claimant has a colorable claim, um, some claimants may not even be aware that their claims are pending in an asbestos bankruptcy, um, and so when you have the centralization, degree of centralization you have in controlling asbestos claims uh, that, you, that that we have, um, the, the supermajority re- requirement effectively precludes um, uh, any kind of a plan going forward that. Uh, really this very small group of lawyers uh, doesn't agree with. And so it's, it's not really a great surprise that the resulting trusts tend to reflect their interest, um, you know, reducing evidentiary and claim qualification standards, uh, that sort of thing, e- even where uh, those steps might ultimately undermine future victims' interest and in asset preservation.
0: So how, how can these, a couple questions following up on that, firstly, why did Congress put the 75% requirement in, and then what should we do to rectify this problem?
1: Well, the 75% requirement was really just one piece of the puzzle. Um, uh, of course, the, the statute also uh, provides that there should be a futures vict- uh, representative appointed someone, an independent person, to speak for them and to negotiate on their behalf. And uh yeah, but so that person was expect, was envisioned, I think, at the time as someone who would provide a powerful counterweight to current claimants. Um, but the seventy-five percent vote wasn't just seen as a way to protect current claimants; it was a way to uh, kind of limit the possibility that a, that debtors would just jump run into bankruptcy and then consistently seek to cram down unfavorable settlements. Not just so that they hurt current claimants, but also cram down plans that would hurt future victims as well. The 75% vote isn't just about empowering current claimants; it's also about empowering and and, excuse me, preventing debtors from uh, just coming in, rushing into bankruptcy, setting up these unfavorable settlements, getting confirmation, and moving on.
0: Of course, the the irony is it, it's worked out, as I hear you describing it, that the leverage and power sits not with the, the debtor firms, but sits with a very small handful of plaintiff's lawyers. Uh,
1: historically, it has, um, especially in the prepackaged bankruptcies that you saw, just one filed one after another in the early 2000s. Uh, some of those cases were even recommended by... One of the leading plaintiffs lawyers, um, and uh, counsel uh, would have been someone that they recommended uh, right. to to the debtor uh, debtors' counsel would have been someone that they recommended to the debtor um, so but it's it's interesting because it also an extension of that power uh, wound up being uh, the exercise of you know exercising that power and the threat of that power to also have substantial influence in appointing the legal representative for future victims. Um, so, uh, in some of those cases, uh, the debtor ostensibly was the one who uh, who selected a futures representative, um, but the leading plaintiffs firms uh, you know, made it clear that they um, they were not going to accept certain people. They had to have the ability to come in and make sure that the person who was appointed in that role was someone that they could work with.
0: So they have, they get to pick who the debtor's counsel is, and they get to pick who the future claims representative is, and I know one thing you've written about is that a concern that arises then is that the handful of future claim representatives who end up getting appointed are those who are compliant. Uh, It's a very remunerative uh, employment, and since the plaintiff's bar controls, as you're describing uh, much of uh, what, what goes on, then uh, you uh, have them not really being the effective counterweight that, as you were describing, Congress had intended uh, to have happen. Uh, so how can we fix this? What, what can we do to 524G? I mean, it certainly sounds like an unintended consequence that the structure of 524G they didn't think it would lead to this kind of comprehensive control by a small number of plaintiff's lawyers.
1: Right. Well, I think um, my, my thinking about the 524G really does go back to the future's representative first and foremost. Um, there are no clear standards for appointment. Uh, there's no specific guidance concerning who exactly they represent. We don't see more than one appointed in a case, even though future victims – can have clearly conflicting interest in how a trust is designed, just as current claimants can. Of course. Um, They lack the power to vote and otherwise force concessions on points that might benefit future victims. Um, And so taking all of that into account, uh, I I think the statute could certainly be strengthened by clarifying what the legal representative's role is, who can sit in that position, um, and where it might be necessary to appoint more than one. Uh, to represent distinct interest within that group of future uh, future claimants uh, more effectively, um, I've also proposed in connection with the supermajority vote issue uh, that we should look at providing some mechanism for cramming down uh, a asbestos creditors' votes, perhaps conditioning that approval, um, conditioning that cram down on the approval of the future representative, um, which would achieve both of those objectives. Uh, it would give that future representative a, a great deal more leverage in the case and also uh, help avoid circumstances where you have uh, the holdout problem from a, a small, you know, an individual or a couple of prominent
0: uh, lawyers. And, and that, of course, further underscores the importance, the point you are making about trying to, Establish mechanisms to ensure the actual independence and autonomy of the future claims representative.
1: Exactly. It, it, that, of course, doesn't work if the future claims representative is not truly independent. If they're, you know, one of the future's representatives in a case uh, several years ago said that uh, he clearly felt a punch-pulling effect in certain matters. Um, and uh you know, he, he he felt he had to pu- pull his punches on certain questions. Um, we don't want legal representatives that feel like they have to pull their punches. You know, we, you know, if you are a future victim who's relied on one of these individuals to represent your interest, you 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 may want them to come out swinging.
0: <laughs> and yet, the person's concerned that if they do, that's the last such appointment they'll ever get. The way right. the, the way the system is currently. Uh, Currently set up. Any other changes that you would suggest to 524G before we turn to uh, to look at the current uh, House bill uh, that uh, was quite controversial in at the Garlock case? Right.
1: Well, um, the other point that uh, that has been troubling to me in 524G bankruptcies uh, ties into that, so uh, it'll provide a nice segue, I guess. Um, Uh, Beyond the issues that I've mentioned, uh, most of the critical disputes that we see in these cases are are largely shielded from public scrutiny. Uh, Several of these key filings, the filings that might tell you what's going on in the case uh, and who represents what constituency and so on, the 2019 filings, ballots, uh, several motions, uh, transcripts of hearings, all of those are sealed uh, on the docket. Uh, Even where redacted filings appear to be more consistent with the public interest in uh, transparency in judicial proceedings, these documents and court transcripts are simply made unavailable. Um, And this extends, of course, once the trusts are established. Uh, They treat everything as confidential, all of the submissions, uh, all of their communications, and actively contest efforts to obtain information about what exactly is going on in the trust system. Um, And so even though these may not be sexy issues, as one court recently explained in uh, denying access to some of these records, uh, they involve the establishment and operations of entities controlling several billion dollars in assets and questions uh, that are of considerable public interest and and certainly of interest to people who may get sick in the future.
0: Well, and Professor, as you said, that very much uh, provides a segue to uh, consideration of fact. The House bill that was uh, passed in uh, November, uh, almost perfectly on party lines, with Republicans in favor and Democrats against. Can you lay out what the principal? It's not a very long bill. What the principal provisions of that bill are?
1: Right. Well, as you say, it's a it's an incredibly short bill, um, and really the key provisions are first, uh, the trust would be required to file quarterly reports. That includes specific information, and this specific information would focus on the claims received and paid during the quarter, Um, but it would not require the disclosure of confidential medical records and social security numbers. Uh, It would basically just be something that you would publish in a chart format where you would identify the name, um, some kind of uh, contact information, the basis for the claim submitted. Uh, v- very kind of high-level information. Uh, the second requirement would be for trust to disclose claim forms and related materials uh, to defendants, solvent defendants, who are in litigation in the tort system uh, upon request. Um, and this, this uh, requirement was amended uh, in the 2012 bill and it was continued into the 2013 bill, to uh, allow the trust to actually charge uh, those seeking this information uh, the cost of actually putting it together for them.
0: So what are the problems that those provisions supposedly are trying to cure? And, and I would ask if, if those, in your opinion, are in fact real problems or uh, perhaps one of the, sort of scare tactics uh, being propounded by the the Right. What, what are they trying to get at with these disclosure-type provisions?
1: Well, the, the the word you're going to hear most often from some proponents of this legislation is fraud. Um, I want to get away from that word for, for a moment and actually look at what they're actually trying to say when they say fraud. Um, I think what they're really saying is that uh, although state courts have consistently allowed Solvent defendants in the tort system to obtain discovery of trust forms. Uh, Defendants, these defendants have contended that plaintiffs routinely ignore or circumvent those obligations, uh, make inconsistent representations in the tort system and in the trust system, um, and there's no way to, to ensure that there's some consistency between the two. And since there's no current mechanism for really making sure there is consistency, we wind up with these grossly inconsistent uh, representations, and, and in fact, at times contradictory.
0: Could you explain th- this? Is really a, this is a very critical part, uh, Professor? Exactly. Can you explain what you're talking about when you're talking about contradictory uh, information and the like? I mean, what, what's what's going on? What what is the allegation about what's going on that they're trying to get at?
1: All right. Well, it goes um, maybe a little bit of a background on this uh, would be useful. Um, The current lead defendants in the tort system are were not major players in what we might think of as the asbestos industry. Uh, Even by 1990, as much as two thirds of the companies responsible for as much as two thirds of the asbestos products sold and used in the United States had already entered bankruptcy. What happened when those companies went away is that the plaintiffs' recollections of exposures to those products also went away. And so defendants who were remaining in the tort system now found themselves as the lead defendants, with plaintiffs coming in and saying, uh, I was exposed to your product. And one of the defenses, uh, one, of the, one of the questions that goes to more than one defense um, is, what other products were you exposed to? Of course. How long were you exposed to those products? Um, with, you know, when those early lead defendants were still in the tort system, all of those all of that evidence about those exposures were also at play in the in the in the trials. And so many of those many of these then peripheral defendants were able to come in and say, "Look, you were exposed to, say, John's Manville you right. know, insulation for forty years, and you worked for a year with one of my gaskets that has a different type of asbestos, et cetera. It was a very easy case for them to make that that injury was actually caused by John's Manville, not by this other company. And so um, as this process continued, something I've called a cascading failure, as those early defendants left, the second-tier defendants uh, found themselves now as the lead defendants. And then in the bankruptcy wave of the early 2000s, the second-tier defendants left the tort system in large numbers, and still, you know, other uh, other defendants that were further down the line found themselves in the lead plaintiff, in the lead, me, lead defendant role. And so, what they're trying to say is that when these when these companies left the tort system, and then when they set up these trusts, um, the trusts, some of some of which were funded with a large sums of money, and, and you know, uh, depending on the figures you look at. Uh, trust system today controls, you know, 20 to $30 billion. Um, you're still able to make those claims against those companies. You're still getting compensation from those companies. Why hasn't our liability gone down?
0: So you have the same, you would have the same plaintiffs uh, saying, I'm recovering from this defendant under this asbestos trust, and now I'm also pursuing, I, I was exposed to this, and I was exposed to this, and each of them fully caused my injury, and with the defense I mean that can't be. Right? You, you can't have suffered this from everyone. And yet right. the concern, that's why the transparency part, that they don't have any way to, to, to get behind the veil and, and see who is claiming that they also were you know, exposed to this particular product by someone higher up the cascade, as you uh, very interestingly describe it. Well, how, how if this bill were passed? How does it fix that?
1: Well, um, the way that it's uh, the way that it's intended to work is that, um, and we're talking about the federal legislation. Correct. We'll, uh, get, to
0: we'll legislation get to the state
1: legislation. legislation. In a right. Moment. So, at the federal legisl- with the federal legislation, it works largely by deterrence and by allowing uh, defendants to police. Uh, number one uh... you know those claimants who have denied they filed trust claims uh... during the course of the litigation when in fact they have um, if, if their names if disclosed their
0: names, there you go Yeah,
1: right we can go to that trust and say aha you know you, you say you haven't filed any trust claims but here we see on this report wow. from such and such trust right The other is that uh, even with claimants who defer trust submissions until after state court litigation concludes, by making it generally available, uh, those defendants can go back and say, "Wait, uh, while our litigation was pending, you made representations at depositions and so forth that you had no exposure whatsoever to these bankrupt bankrupt defendants' products," and then as soon as the case closed, we see that you went and filed 20 claims with the same trust, where six months ago you were denying any knowledge of exposure to them.
0: So so they're trying to get the transparency, the information, who's filing claims against whom. Well, why this is, this bill, as you know, has been vociferously attacked from the left, uh, and what are the principal concerns that the opponents of the bill have, and to what extent do you think those concerns are, in fact, legitimate?
1: Well, uh, the first and, I think, uh, most common opposition that I've seen is grounded in privacy. Um, you know, the sort of medical and financial information that is generated in asbestos litigation that's required uh, when you submit a claim to a trust uh... can be highly personal and uh... insensitive and, and so uh... you know the concern there is that uh... disinformation would come out and would be used against these individuals in, in some way or perhaps even uh, i've even seen it suggested that it would somehow be used for identity theft um, and it's, it's interesting and i think that it is uh... for many it's a compelling position uh, but when you start to unpack it, um, it's kind of surprising. It's, uh, you know, this information is still generated for the purpose of obtaining compensation, just like information in the, in the tort system. And, and a lot of this information uh, is already available with respect to these individuals you know, if they're filing uh, cases in state court or if they uh, happen to be involved in, or uh, 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 if they happen to file with the one trust that actually already produces all of this information. Um, but even setting that aside, I think the real question here isn't, uh, is it privacy? You know, do we have zero transparency or uh, transparency of everything in the, you know, uh, you know, the, the kitchen sink? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, I think it is still possible to enhance transparency and still preserve some level of anonymity and/or protect information that could be abused. Uh, and bankruptcy courts already do that with respect to torts and other to tort claimants and other claimants' information in other bankruptcy cases. Uh, so I, I'm not. I, I don't find that argument as compelling um, as uh, I think some uh, some who haven't really worked it
0: through him. Well, Professor, it, certainly I think it's a fair statement that uh, in its current form there's zero percent chance that President Obama uh, would sign this bill. But I, I wonder, is there any sort of a compromise uh, bill that could be put together uh, that would put forward, would project the legitimate privacy interests, to the extent they're there, and yet also promote and protect the legitimate transparency needs of defendants uh... in the system Or is this the kind of thing where the battle lines are so starkly drawn that it's never going to happen unless one party gets complete control of the whole legislative process and can sort of run the table and get the bill they want how do you see that playing out
1: well uh... i I guess from my perspective, I have a feeling that, as you say, the battle lines are pretty clearly drawn. Uh, and this doesn't just go to the legislative process. It's also tied to some of the interests that are pushing for or against the legislation. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, and a good example of that is in... Um, uh, some of the individual bankruptcy cases. We've seen some of the same questions uh, you know, e- raised in those questions about privacy or about the cost of compliance. And even after um, there appears to be a compromise uh, that addresses all of these concerns and it addresses them in great detail, one party of the, or the other just walks away. Um, right. Uh, and... Um, you know, and I think it—it's not terribly surprising when you think about the history of asbestos litigation, the uh, the intense emotions and uh, and distrust that have built up over uh, over four decades.
0: It's it's very striking. I mean, to, to read the uh, committee report uh, for uh, the fact bill, you read the majority report, then you read the dissenting views, and you have to pinch yourself to believe they're talking about the same proposed legislation. I mean, it's like it it's so vastly far apart in the whole pitch. So your sense is it's just unlikely that any sort of a compromise bill then could realistically be put together. And so the Republicans may pass this, but at least, well, di- probably very difficult at this point to get it through the Senate as well, I would assume.
1: Right, I, I don't uh I, I don't have high hopes for that uh uh going through the Senate. Um I you know it's 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 less a question of uh the individual senators. I think that there are some senators on both sides of the aisle that are uh, very uh, you know that, that are interested in uh in, in promoting good policy and and striking the right balance and uh um, and in particular, we have some some senators now who are very much uh, interested in bankruptcy and making sure the bankruptcy process works. Uh, but uh, I think ultimately, they're, they're just they're too, it's too sensitive an area um, with very powerful interest on both sides that make it make it very difficult.
0: Let's uh, turn to uh, you had mentioned the state action. I know there's been quite a bit of activity at the state level as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? What has been going on at the state level? And then if you could relate how what's going on in the state level would interact and interrelate with the federal system.
1: Right. Well, several states have considered legislation that is largely based on the same basic model. Uh, the legislation's far more intricate than the FACT Act. If uh, you know, if the FACT Act is a pamphlet, uh, You you might think of the state legislation as war and peace um, because (laughs) it is is very long um, and it includes a number of provisions. Um, These proposals typically seek to establish a a pretty complex process that, uh, if I just break it down into three things, Uh, the first is requiring trust claim filings before trial um, and including allowing defendants to demand that a plaintiff submit claims to a trust uh, you know upon a showing of good cause and staying the case until the resolution until you know this dispute over whether or not a trust claim should be filed is resolved uh, the second is making these forms that are filed available to defendants by default and the third is treating that information as admissible at trial uh, assuming that that's otherwise uh, consistent with evidentiary rules um Oklahoma and Ohio were the first to adopt this legislation. Um, others have considered it, uh, but but it's really too early to gauge the results of the legislation uh, today. I mean, the earliest legislation really just went into effect last year. Where was that? Um, that would have been Oklahoma and Ohio.
0: Those that's where the um, first one. Well, I'm curious right. uh, before we uh, before you talk about how that interrelates to the uh, federal, to to what extent, given that you have sort of a state here, a state there, that has this, uh, obviously, the way you're describing it, very much in the interests of the defendants. To what extent can plaintiffs' lawyers forum shop out of uh, being subjected to those types of uh, restrictions?
1: Well, uh, if forum shopping uh, remains uh, an issue. Uh, you if The uh Rules uh, in some states are still pretty uh, pretty broad and allow you to file a claim based on very uh, loose connections to that uh, to that venue. Uh, so uh, certainly that is a possibility.
0: I mean, it would see it would seem that a a plaintiffs lawyer would never file a case in Oklahoma now, for example, <laughs> given that they could file in a lot of other states and not be subjected to that that sort of con- constraint. Well, how does it relate with the federal? Uh, trusts, these state well, actions. They,
1: Right. They do overlap, but the state legislation is, is far more extensive, of course, and, and is really focused on pre-trial state practice than public transparency. Um, okay. The federal legislation targets the trust and imposes obligations on them. The state legislation uh, focuses on litigants that are in the state court and their obligations and rights um, with respect to this
0: system. So they're really complementary. then, in that regard, it sounds like. Right. Well, before we run out of time, I, I do want to turn to the, uh, uh, to the Garlock case, which has, uh, as you know, uh, garnered a tremendous amount of press. This is the one, as I said, just uh, last month. Judge Hodges down in North Carolina slashes uh, the estimation for as- asbestos liability by 90% tell us what judge hodges allegedly found and then talk about what that means i mean what you're reading is if what he found is true then there's there's a lot of concern about the prospect of fraud so could you talk about that a little uh,
1: sure. Uh, well, Judge Hodges uh, allowed discovery into a small subset of the cases that Garlock had settled and, and some other discovery that um, uh, was was then used by the company at its estimation hearing, um, you know, which, of course, is a, an important part of the asbestos bankruptcy process. Um, the debtors argued that their liability had been artificially inflated by fraud, that plaintiffs had been concealing information along the lines of what I was talking about before, uh, the plaintiffs knew or should have known that they had an obli- you know, th- uh, this information, and they had an obligation to disclose it. Um, and they argued that this, in turn, led to settlements that were artificially inflated. So uh, where a number of other courts have looked to settlement history and said, okay, let's look at your past number of claims, let's predict how many claims you're expected to be in the future in the tort system, and let's just do Sort of an extrapolation, right. Right, exactly. Um, uh, the debtors were saying you can 't really do that because that 's going to lead to a massively inflated number, uh, and instead, you need to look at a little more deeply at the substance and and analyze what what the reality should have been
0: in uh, those settled what, cases.
1: right. The idea there is that what you 're estimating is liability, not what plaintiffs might have expected if they could continue this process of concealing information in the tort system.
0: Based on that, and I mean, it, it's interesting because uh, what, what was very striking has been much reported in the press. Essentially, virtually every case that they went behind the settlement, they found essentially nothing uh, to support the settlement. I mean, so it, it just looked like a, a huge house of cards. And and so there's a lot of concern uh, about that. Well, do you think Garlock is different? From other asbestos bankruptcies, or is it typical and thus sort of the tip of a very ugly iceberg?
1: Um,
0: <laughs> I know it's hard to know, uh, lacking omniscience, but
1: uh... right. Um, I I don't think that what Judge Hodges found is terribly uncommon, uh, but it's hard to say with certainty, just given the limited access to claim level information. Of course, uh, and of course, even he was careful in the opinion to avoid calling the conduct fraud. Um, you know that that question, of course, remains to be decided in the pending adversary cases that you mentioned. Right. Um, and but but that said, uh, you know some of the things that some of the points that he raises there uh, suggest, at least on the part of some, a seemingly uh, cavalier attitude uh, with respect to hiding known information that is. You know, they're required to disclose in state court. Um, and, and that kind of language, that kind of discussion, I think is likely to grab the attention of some judges and legislators who probably in the past dismissed these types of claims as little more than just, you know, conspiracy theories.
0: And, and just sort of then blithely accepted the sort of what you were describing standard extrapolation model of estimation where you look at, say, at the settlement history, you see how many more claims you expect, just project it out. Right. Do you think other judges then, what I'm hearing you say is you think it may in fact be the case that other judges will follow uh, in Judge Hodge's footsteps and perhaps start doing that, or, or do you think they won't?
1: Uh, it's hard to say right now. Uh, obviously, it's just one opinion. It's from a bankruptcy judge um, in North Carolina, not uh, one of the uh, markets where you tend to see much larger filings on a consistent basis. Um, but I think I think that that actually goes to a, you know one of the one of the points I uh, I would want to make there. I think that the judge made a difference here. Uh, he's not a repeat player in these types of bankruptcies He's not um you know in a in a jurisdiction that some have criticized for um their own you know you know race to the bottom type of analysis. Right. Um, right. um and but in this case, in following this case, I was you know, really struck not by how different he was from other judges because I don't think in many respects he was. But I do think that he he really did go out of his way to allow the parties to make their case um, and to balance their interest in the discovery and to uh, try to uh, you know, give the parties their respective say in the estimation process. Um, and I think that he really did uh, you know, sit back and say, "I want to understand this process." He had an extensive, uh, lengthy trial. Uh, though much of that trial wound up being uh, 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 closed and the uh, transcripts are not available. But um, I I think it's very hard to say that this is an outlier in the sense that he just kind of cavalierly dismissed the settlement history model. I I think that what he he did go out of his way to give the parties an opportunity to make their case.
0: Well, one can certainly expect that the repeat player defendants are going to now routinely at least request that the judge doing estimations in these cases follow a similar type of procedure because and indeed they can say, look at the difference it made. It's made a 90% difference. Uh, if you followed these sort of old projection type model, it would have been a billion something. Uh, that That appears to have been the case, and he found a vastly lower Uh, So at least it will be, uh, I would guess, uh, be litigated or be urged to be litigated uh, more often. What other fallout will there be? I mean, will this uh, have a fallout in the state court uh, as well?
1: Um, Well, um, I think that it could have some fallout in the state court. Um, Not necessarily a lot more than we've seen over the last few months, uh, given some other uh opinions of similar you know other other cases where similar practices were uncovered um you had Judge Abelman and uh I think uh, Delaware a couple of years ago had had one of these issues and uh issued some rulings that were were uh, widely publicized uh I think that the state courts have become more cognizant of the of the issue and of the potential here and um, I think that it also weakens the argument. An argument that I've heard several times uh, at conferences and um, in various position pieces. That yes, this potential is there. This potential to have you know, to to make conflicting representations in the trust system and in the tort system. The potential to strategically time your filing so you don't have to comply with discovery in the state court proceeding. Uh, consistently heard that that doesn't happen. Uh, Some very prominent lawyers saying, we don't do that, we don't know any other plaintiff's lawyers who do that. Uh, That argument becomes, I think, considerably weaker after this opinion, Uh, particularly where Judge Hodges said in the 15 cases where they allowed this extensive post-settlement discovery, they found that that actually occurred in all 15
0: cases. That was was fairly damning evidence, wasn't it? Uh, Do you think this... uh... What about the impact on the legislation uh, that's in process, both, both at the state and federal level? You've, you've talked about how it might impact the, in the courts. Do you think it will have an impact in, on the proposed legislation?
1: Well, I think at the federal level, it, you know, it really, I think, makes pretty quick work of the argument that some have made that the FACT Act was merely a solution in search of a problem. I, I think this pretty plainly and clearly reveals that there is a problem. Uh, if you believe that having you know having a system where uh, claimants can make vastly different representations, even conflicting representations in the trust system and in the tort system is a problem, um, uh, I think that um, you know, I personally obviously do think that it is an issue that it needs leads needs to be debated and needs to be part of the discussion. Uh, and uh, that the practices have clearly evolved to the level where they can undermine state efforts to incorporate trust information and payments into their own proceedings. Um, you know, the, the most interesting thing about this, uh, this opinion, to me, isn't just what Judge Judge has found. There's also been the reaction uh, of some of the lawyers to that opinion. And I think that may ultimately have more of an impact on some of the at least the federal legislation and some of the discussion at the federal level. Uh what some of us have said for years is that the trust exposure standards are shockingly low, which is exactly what you know, in 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 some of the papers I've written, uh you know, I, I one of the reasons I, I argue that the trusts are consistently underfunded, wind up being grossly oversubscribed and and being depleted,
0: I, I like the one example you gave what were the all someone had to do is say they had worked at Penn State. I think it was
1: <laughs> right. I mean you know if you, uh, if you say that you worked at this sprawling facility, uh, depending on the type of claim and depending on the trust, right. um, you're good to go exposure. Um, And, uh, you know, even some plaintiff's lawyers in the past have, you know, broken from their peers and said, that's that's ridiculous. Um, You know, this would assume some kind of fiber drift theory that uh, no state court has ever adopted. Um, But, uh, you know, in response to this opinion, now we're hearing, well, that information shouldn't be relevant at the state level because the trusts don't really ask you for anything that's relevant to proving exposure um <laughs> uh, uh, huh. I, I personally think that that should be something that needs to be in, you know needs to be considered uh, maybe uh those of us who have questioned the 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 severity of or excuse me, the, the uh, lack of uh
0: How low the bar is. Yeah. The claims uh, you
1: know, maybe that's something that needs to be investigated something that needs to be dealt with
0: well, professor, let me ask you a couple final questions firstly you get out your magic crystal ball and sort of look into it what do you see happening next i mean wh- this there's been a lot of action uh, in recent uh, times uh, with regard to asbestos trust they've been around for a good 30 years but now it seems like a lot is churning out there so my first question is what what does your crystal ball show
1: well um i guess uh looking at my crystal ball i, I would ask um uh, I think there's some really interesting developments here uh, that uh, are completely unpredictable and, and I wouldn't even have, you know want to guess uh, how they're going to proceed. Um, yeah, one of the matters we haven't discussed and that hasn't really gained a lot of traction publicly is uh, some of the health insurers who have paid for uh, medical treatment for asbestos claims have recently started trying to get information from the trust.
0: I saw that a number of them have been filing suit uh, just just in recent weeks. Trying to get the that information,
1: right? That's going to be very interesting legis- litigation to follow. I think um, because it's, it it really does speak to you know, it goes to this lack of transparency, and and you're talking about parties who um, actually paid and so, and actually did uh, incur some cost and and have some contractual r- subrogation rights that it, exactly a they're, fee-
0: they're claiming subrogation absolutely. Right. and say, we, we need to be able to find this out to find out if we have a subrogation claim.
1: Right. I think that's a very interesting uh, uh, set of cases. It's something that I, I'm going to be interested to follow. Um, as far as the trust operations themselves, I think there will be more pressure on the trust to uh, try to figure out uh, how to uh, maybe tighten up their standards and uh, address some of these uh, transparency questions. I, I don't see those questions going away.
0: Well, so my final question then: Let's let's say hypothetically that <clears throat> President Obama uh, establishes a, a blue ribbon commission to to study the issues, identify solutions to this whole asbestos trust conundrum, and and picks you uh, to be the chair, the spokesman uh, of this important blue ribbon commission. What? not having studied it yet with the other commissioners, but uh, in your hypothetical world, what do you think your most important conclusions and recommendations might be for the president with regard to what we can do with regard to this problem?
1: Well, I I think the first would be that we do need to know more about what happens behind these closed doors. Um, It makes it very difficult to have an intelligent policy discussion when so much of the critical goings-on uh, just aren't available for uh, for inquiry, um, and even even when you do, ha- if you do have access to some of that information, you're precluded from discussing it uh, <laughs> because of these uh, these or these orders, uh, these orders to seal information and confidentiality orders that are imposed upon participants in the process. So, I, I think that we do need to see more. We need to have a, some kind of oversight, if not um, independent oversight by some independent body. Uh, you know, at the very least, some level of transparency that allows those who study the process and who are interested in, um, in discussing ways to improve the process have access to it.
0: So if there were a way we could could satisfy that transparency need, which which really does seem quite evident while still being cognizant of protecting legitimate privacy concerns, that that would be a major step forward is is what I'm hearing you say.
1: I think it would be, and that's one of the reasons that I've uh, spent as much time as I have lately on the transparency issues because I believe that there are other things, obviously, that we could could do to make the process work better, but uh, we just can't have uh, an informed debate right now. Um, and uh, at least not one that um, can't just be thrust aside by representations from, by parties who have direct interest in the, in, in these matters uh, by claiming superior knowledge. Um, you know, if you look at the if you look at the hearing from last year, the federal hearing, um, one of the witnesses testified repeatedly: there's no fraud, there, there are no concerns here. Um, that witness was present at a number of the depositions that occurred in the Garlock case. Uh, They knew the representations Garlock had made. They were aware that a number of trusts had sued uh, a law firm in California for, or not sued, but had, uh, well, some had sued and some had simply stopped accepting claims from a a law firm in California after someone, after a whistleblower uh, advised them that this claim, this firm was submitting fraudulent claims. Um, they use the term fraud.
0: And yet this person said no fraud, and in, in being fully cognizant that uh, there had been su- fairly substantial right. evidence that it was existing. Well, and I
1: think that, you know, my, my point there isn't that, uh, you know, in his mind he believed there was fraud and he misrepresented to, you know, made a misrepresentation. I don't believe that he believes there's fraud. But that's part of the problem. Uh, what is characterized as fraud or not fraud uh, you know, why does it matter if it's characterized as fraud? We simply
0: don't know um, what's going on, is exactly. what you're saying.
1: Right. If you want to ask if there's fraud, you should be able to point to specific circumstances and say, okay, you said there's no fraud. How is this not fraud? How is this not fraud? Uh, why is this, even if it's not fraud, something that we should uh, sanction and we should, uh, should allow in, in the uh, current system?
0: This is definitely a problem that is not going to go away, as you said. It's in his, if anything, just ratcheted up even more dramatically. Professor, I know I, I speak for everyone here at the ABI and uh, for all of our listeners in, in thanking you, uh, Todd Brown, professor at the University of Buffalo, for your very insightful and very balanced, uh, thoughtful views. Uh, on the problem of asbestos trusts and bankruptcy. This this is a huge national issue. And we certainly hope that uh, Congress and the courts uh, will, will take heed of, of many of the, uh, the thoughts you've shared with us uh, and that we will move to a fairer and more balanced system in the future. So Professor, thank you very much for participating today.
1: Well, thank you. uh, It's my
0: pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's program, and be sure to join us again for another edition of ABI Podcast.